This is David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 5, War and Pieces, Part 1. War games have been around for thousands of years. It's a genre that I could easily spend a season on all on its own. We would start with the toy soldiers found in ancient Egyptian pyramids and Far Eastern tombs, move through to the invention of chess and its many variants in the Middle Ages, explore how the Prussian army invented real-time strategy wargaming in the 1860s with Kriegspielen, and go on to the first modern set of rules for tactical wargaming invented by none other than H.G. Wells in his groundbreaking 1913 book Little Wars. Then we'd crossfade to the invention of hex and counter war games, I'll explain that term in a minute, by Charles Roberts in the late 1950s, which led to the blossoming of the hobby as we know it in the 1960s and 70s. In episode one, I told an abbreviated version of how I was introduced to war games by my counselor at summer camp when I was 10. But I didn't get into why that superficial introduction at a half-hour summer camp activity led to a lifetime hobby, and I'd like to fill that gap in now, because whenever I say war games is one of my hobbies, I get odd looks. People look at me like I've just revealed that I collect German World War II war memorabilia, or that I have a survival bunker in my backyard. There's no question that some war gamers are people who, to some extent, fetishize war and its trappings. I don't think there are a lot of them, but I only have anecdotal data to support that belief. For sure, I know that some war gamers have strong political opinions. Personally, I don't think you can play historical games without being interested in and passionate about politics, but if anything, war gamers tend to be, if not anti-war, then at least more aware of its complexity and the human costs, so they're less, not more likely to be warmongers. You can't immerse yourself in a well-designed and researched conflict simulation without learning a few lessons about human folly. Other war gamers come to the hobby through the military, whether from their own service or because they're from military families. I've got to imagine that if you serve your country or you grow up on one or more military bases surrounded by military people, you're liable to develop an interest in military history and strategy that goes beyond the mere mechanics of fighting. Now, I didn't grow up in a military family, but my father was a Holocaust survivor. His Hungarian family was rounded up in 1944 when he was 17 years old. He was lucky to be in the physical prime of his life, and therefore was able to survive the hardships of forced labor and forced marches long enough to stay alive long enough to be liberated. Some of my elementary school teachers were also survivors, and not as buttoned up about their experiences as my father. And because my father had never talked about his experiences, I'd never heard the term concentration camp before. So when my grade three teacher, Mrs. Gershoni, told us on more than one occasion about being in a concentration camp, I thought she meant a summer camp where they played concentration, which was a long-running game show and a card game when I was growing up. So the Holocaust indelibly stamped my father with a whole set of complexes, which in turn affected my mother, who wasn't a survivor, my brother, and me. It took years for me to unpack it all, helped along by books like Helena Epstein's Children of the Holocaust and Art Spiegelman's epic graphic novel Mouse. Uh, 
And the fact that my dad never talked about it made it all the more ominous, and made me curious to know more. So I'm sure that was one source of my interest in military history. On top of that, I think it's impossible to grow up in a Jewish household and not be aware of history, because Judaism is a religion and a culture steeped in history, with holidays and lore full of stories about battles, military campaigns, sieges, and great generals, like Joshua, Deborah, Saul, and of course my namesake David. Uh, there's also Judah the Maccabee, Bar Kokhba, and on through the Crusades leading to modern times, which leads to another probable source of my interest in military history, growing up in an era when the Israeli army had just come off a stunning six-day victory in 1967, as well as a more difficult multi-week campaign in 1973. At school, I was taught the standard narrative of Theodor Herzl and Chaim Weizmann fighting to create, quote, a land without a people for a people without a land, unquote. And we were played live recordings of the capture of the Western Wall in Jerusalem by Israeli paratroopers in 1967. My mother's brother and sister had both fought in the Israeli army and air force in the 1950s, and I had several cousins on both sides in the army as well. I also remember well the day they canceled classes and herded us all into the big room in the basement, which was the only room big enough to hold all the students at the school, and wheeled in a television for us all to watch the plane landing and the historical visit of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat to Israel to sign a peace treaty with Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Now, as I grew up and opened my mind to other narratives and evidence, my take on the geopolitics of the Middle East evolved, to say the least. I continue to struggle with it, being as it is a minefield, metaphoric and literal, of moral and emotional conflicts and allegiances. Playing war games has been, for me at least, part of the process of revisiting the past the only way I can, short of time travel, and in doing so try to come to grips with it. To sum up, I think I was drawn to war games because I hoped they'd help me understand my father as well as the culture in which I was growing up. Helping that interest along was the fact that every game I bought when I was starting out was published by Avalon Hill, which meant that it had pages and pages of designer and historical notes at the end of the rules. And reading them, I couldn't help become fascinated with the challenge of how you simulate warfare in such a way as to put the player in the driver's seat of the great commanders of the past. Designers like John Hill and Courtney Allen, who turn up later in this episode, were always willing to put playability ahead of strict realism if it meant a more authentic experience. And in this way, they presaged Euro designers like Alan Moon and Jamie Stegmeier. This tension in tabletop design between simulation and game continues to this day. If I've delved a little too deeply into my psyche, I apologize. I just wanted to give you a window into what I think prepared me to be so receptive to tabletop games about war. I didn't know about it at the time, of course, but the hot summer of 1977, when I was introduced to war games, was close to the high water mark of the wargaming hobby. Sales had gone up 300% from a decade before, with the lion's share of the market going to just two companies, Avalon Hill, whose founder Charles S. Roberts had jump-started the hobby in the mid-1950s with a game called Tactics, 
and Simulations Publications, Inc., or SPI, founded in 1969, whose guiding force was a former Avalon Hill staffer named James Dunnigan. Robert's vision for Avalon Hill went far beyond war games, of which they only published two a year, like clockwork. By far, the majority of their output covered the gamut, from trivia to sports to business and law, and they were all known for their lavish components, including full-color mounted map boards and extensive rules. Their in-house magazine, The General, was for years a clearinghouse of articles and news not only of Avalon Hill games, but the hobby in general. Meanwhile, although SPI dipped their toe into other genres, they published mainly war games, and many more per year than Avalon Hill, and which until the late 1970s tended to be smaller and shorter in play length than their Avalon Hill counterparts. SPI also had a magazine, Strategy and Tactics, which came out six times a year, but unlike the general, it had a full game inside every issue. As a result of all this production, SPI had to compensate by using cheaper components, their maps were unmounted, their counters were thinner, and both only used two-color printing. But whether published by Avalon Hill, SPI, or any of the other smaller companies that made up the industry at the time, 99% of war games of this era adhered to a format that had been codified first by Charles Roberts at Avalon Hill, and then the development team at SPI. The game map whether it was a street battle, a river valley, or a continent, was overlaid with a hexagonal grid to facilitate movement in combat. The pieces were little square cardboard counters usually marked with two numbers, one for the unit's combat strength and one for its movement capability. There was also usually some kind of unit designation in a small rectangle, infantry, cavalry, artillery, and so on. These tended to follow modern U.S. Army symbology regardless of the era. Infantry were marked with an X, cavalry with a slash, artillery with a dot in the middle of the rectangle, and so on. This is why traditional war games are called hex and counter games. Player turns alternated between attacker and defender. Each side first moved and then attacked with as many of its units as it could. Combat was almost always resolved by computing the ratio between attacking and defending strengths, rounding down to the nearest whole number, rolling a single six-sided die, and then consulting a combat results table to see who won. This thinking wasn't limited to game mechanics. In terms of theme, by far the largest proportion of historical war games of the hobby's first three decades covered just three conflict eras. The Napoleonic Wars, the American Civil War, and World War II. 60% of the games that won the hobby's biggest award, the Charles Roberts Prize, came from these three eras alone. After that, in popularity came ancient warfare, usually Greek or Roman, the American Revolutionary War, and hypothetical World War III US-Soviet conflict. Anything outside those areas was considered exotic and less likely to find an audience. It also took a long time for war game designers to incorporate any economic or political elements into their games. After all, it was hard enough to research and balance a game's military systems, let alone address money or politics. Aside from diplomacy, the classic 1959 game about pre-First World War skullduggery, there was nothing out there like this in tabletop. This was mainly because it was very hard to shoehorn non-military themes into the hex encounter system. When it was attempted, such as the 1976 SPI game The Plot to Assassinate Hitler, the results were bizarre indeed. 
But give SPI credit, at least they tried, and tried again, with games like Tito and Nicaragua, and each attempt sold miserably. It wasn't until Avalon Hill published The Rise and Decline of the Third Reich in 1974 that a major publisher successfully incorporated an economic system into a war game, specifically the European fronts of World War II. Now nations had both economic incentives to invade new territories, as well as limitations on how many new units they could build every turn. Third Reich, as it was usually called, was a hugely popular game, and it got me into a spot of trouble riding the New York City subway on a trip with my family one day when I was around 11. I was sitting there reading the rules propped up in my lap, and some teenager across the car from me said, Hey kid, are you a Nazi? My father, who was already having trouble understanding why his son was playing a game with a title like The Rise and Decline of the Third Reich, got up and sat next to this teenager and started a conversation and I've blocked the rest of what happened out of my memory, out of embarrassment and mortification. But despite Third Reich's success, few others followed in its wake, and the self-imposed limitations on both rules and theme remained remarkably consistent through the whole first part of that era, from the mid-50s to the mid-70s. On the one hand, the two biggest publishers, Avalon Hill and SPI, came to depend on them to streamline the production process. Games about World War II, the Civil War, and the Napoleonic era were the superhero movies of their day. Fans would buy almost anything that came out. This meant designers could draw on a common pool of sources for their research, and using the same base mechanics from game to game saved on development. They didn't have to reinvent the wheel every time. This led to the growing fan base expecting certain themes and mechanics and becoming less interested in buying and playing new games about obscure wars or using untried systems. This in turn encouraged publishers to stick with the formula, and the cycle was complete. But this monoculture was never 100%, and games were continually being released, even by major publishers, that departed from the norm, finding fans who were looking for something different. It's just that they never sold well, usually, even if they later proved to be strokes of genius ahead of their time. One such game was Upfront, designed by Courtney Allen. It was released in 1983 by Avalon Hill as a cards-only version of their huge hit Hex Encounter World War II tactical game Squad Leader, which in turn had been designed by John Hill and survives today as one of the most played war games of all time. The first and biggest strike against Upfront in hardcore gamers' eyes was simply that it was a card game. There was no board, and counters were used only as markers instead of units. The cards represented the terrain, the obstacles, and the individual soldiers, and were also used as randomizers to resolve combat. But although it immediately picked up a devoted core of fans, most wargamers couldn't get past how different it was. I freely admit I was one of them. Upfront wasn't a real war game. No hexes! No counters! Oh, if only I had been paying more attention. Now, to be fair, Upfront had some stiff competition in 1983. The game that won the Roberts Award for Best 20th Century Game that year was Ambush, a terrific and immersive solitaire game of tactical World War II combat, which I own and loved. And while Ambush did anticipate in tabletop form all the real-time video game shooters to come, making the player do all the record-keeping, Upfront was the more innovative design, 
In fact, I would argue that Allen anticipated the collectible card game genre by 10 years. And if Avalon Hill had known what they had, it would have been they and not Wizards of the Coast that minted all that cash. And perhaps Avalon Hill would still exist today as a company. But Upfront was like the album The Velvet Underground and Nico. It didn't sell very much, but everyone who bought it started a band. Except by starting a band, I mean going on to design games. One such fan-turned-designer was Mark Herman, who found a more palatable mix of card play and counter-pushing with his 1992 game for Avalon Hill, We the People. We the People simulated the American Revolution, which had already been covered by classic games such as Avalon Hill 1776. But Herman's game departed from the established formula in several key ways. Firstly, instead of hexes, armies moved around the eastern seaboard of the United States via a network of spaces connected by lines. Although this point-to-point -point abstraction of movement was not groundbreaking, games like Conquest had been using it for years, it released Herman from the rigidity of the hex grid, which was not as well suited to pre-20th century combat, which had in the past required paragraphs of special rules and terrain exceptions to deal with. Next was Herman's decision to use stand-up tokens with plastic bases for each side's generals instead of cardboard counters. This was purely an aesthetic decision since it had no effect on gameplay, but it made the game look more accessible and conversely made hardcore wargamers take it less seriously. I mean, pfft, plastic stand-up counters? What are we playing here, Clue? But the final and most important innovation was card play. Cards were not only used to move armies and change political influence in the colonies, they were also used to resolve combat. And why was this such a big deal? Because traditional hex encounter war games, with some very notable exceptions, such as Upfront, suffered from one acknowledged and very ahistorical problem. There was no fog of war. Players had too much control over their armies and too much information about their opponents. That meant they could make exact calculations in a way that real-life commanders never could. They could figure out how many turns it would take for reinforcements to reach the front, or what the exact odds were to capture that town, and most importantly, they knew exactly where opposing forces were. By 1992, these perfect information issues had at least partially been dealt with in different ways by different designers. 1976's Panzergruppe Guderian used inverted counters so that one, sometimes both players, didn't know exactly what the strengths of the armies were. Squad Leader used morale rules, which meant that units could break under combat or become ineffective. Operation Market Garden used a double-blind system where each player had their own map, a precursor to today's real-time simulation war games like Hearts of Iron. But all these systems were either too simplistic or too cumbersome. It was Herman's genius to realize that card play could introduce enough uncertainty to simulate the tension of the fog of war without burdening the players with too many rules and systems. It hit the sweet spot that made We the People such an influential game, even if, like Upfront, it was too far ahead of its time to be popular with hardcore wargamers. The Charles Roberts Award for Best Pre-World War II Game in 1992, the year We the People came out, was SPQR, a relatively traditional hex encounter game of tactical combat in ancient Rome. One of its co-designers was Mark Herman. 1992 was a really good year for Mark Herman. What was acknowledged at the time by at least some wargamers was that We the People was a cracking good game, even if they refused to call it a real wargame.
They recognized that it was a mix of traditional war games and what was then just beginning to be called German games, which we now call the Euros. That's because, although We the People was far from simple, it was still much less rules-heavy than traditional war games, and it gave you great historical bang for your buck without sacrificing realism the way that games like Axis and Allies did. And it was playable in much less time. Avalon Hill released two more card-driven games in the 1990s, but by that point they, and the war game industry itself, was in crisis. The major publishers had never properly come to terms with the arrival in quick succession of Dungeons & Dragons and video games, which bled off a lot of customers and potential fans. They just kept on as they had been doing, assuming, or hoping, that fans would return. But the boom years were definitely over. Worldwide sales for war games plummeted from a high of 200,000 units in 1980 to about half of that in 1991. SPI, which was second only to Avalon Hill in sales, suffered from bloated overreach and had to mortgage itself to TSR, the company behind Dungeons & Dragons, in 1982 just to stay afloat. TSR not only failed to keep SPI alive, they basically killed it off by refusing to honor SPI's magazine subscriptions, which alienated two-thirds of their fan base. Avalon Hill then absorbed most of SPI's talent and spun them off into a subsidiary, Victory Point Games, which flourished on its own for a few years, but then died its own death in the late 90s. Then, TSR itself was bought up in 1996 by none other than Wizards of the Coast, the company that had struck the motherlode with Magic the Gathering. 1996 also saw the demise of Games Design Workshop, or GDW, the third biggest war game publisher and best known for both huge war games and role-playing games. Finally, in 1999, toy-making giant Hasbro acquired both Avalon Hill and Wizards of the Coast, bringing almost all the original wave of wargame publishers under its own banner and proceeding to let all but the most successful of that incredible tabletop generation of games go out of print. The exception were games like Axis and Allies, which, although a heck of a lot of fun, were far from historical, and a tiny minority of classic games like Acquire. But all was not lost. For in 1991, a new war games company was founded named for its founders Gene Billingsley, Mike Crane, and Terry Shrum, GMT Games. GMT attempted to avoid the mistakes of its predecessors by instituting a pre-order system for new games, which was called P500. P stands for project, not pre-order. Instead of printing up games and taking a chance on consumer tastes, they required that 500 people pay for a game ahead of time before pulling the trigger for its development and production. P500 was crowdfunding before crowdfunding, and it has continued to be the basis of GMT's business model and success ever since. And it was GMT who took the card-driven wargame into the future, sparking new interest in the hobby, expanding the fan base, and not incidentally, cementing its own fortunes, thanks, I believe, to this episode's Game Changer, which came out in 2005. Okay. It's taken me this long just to set up this episode's Game Changer, and uh, I seem to be out of time. I haven't even told you its name. Although I'm sure some of you know which game I'm talking about, I'm going to let it hang in suspense until next time. I most humbly beg your indulgence, dear listeners, but I think it's been a journey worth taking. That was part one of episode five of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table. <laughs> <laughs>